there was a saying among the Jewish rabbis, um, when God chooses a leader, God looks to see how he tends the sheep. Israel's first two kings were Saul and David. Both of them were shepherds, but only one of them actually took care of the sheep. See, in chapter 9, which we haven't read here as a church family, um, the author introduces us to Saul. He's tall, he's handsome, he's suave, but he's not a good shepherd. Because when we first meet him, what he's doing is he's looking for the donkeys that he's lost. But in our passage this morning, chapter 16, we're introduced to David. And he's handsome too. But Scripture draws attention to his beautiful eyes. Beautiful eyes that are laser focused on his sheep. He's the one that God chooses. He's the one that Samuel anoints as Israel's next king. And why? It's because of his heart. The entire narrative wraps around verse 7. When God tells Samuel, people judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. What comes to your mind when you hear the word heart? If you're in the medical profession, you'll think of a blood-pumping organ. But most of us who grew up with the boy bands of the 1990s will think of love. And this is good. But ever since the, heart, the, the Hallmark era, the heart has been sentimentalized. It's been associated with candied hearts and chocolate-covered strawberries. But what does the Bible say about the heart? In the Bible, the heart is the seat of our most fundamental longings and desires. It's the organ of all our thinking and feeling and willing, our choosing. The book of Proverbs says, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Jesus says, for from the heart comes evil thoughts and all the sins that accompany them. And perhaps most importantly, as we're reminded at the beginning of our worship services, every Sunday, God says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Human beings are creatures of desire. We have powerful appetites, whether it's for food or drink or sex or whatever. It's how God created us. And there's nothing wrong with wanting these things. It simply means we're human. And God says over and over again throughout Scripture that being human is good. But what happens when these desires go rogue? What happens when even one of these desires begins to replace God and sit on the throne of our heart? Well, to answer that, we need only to remember what happened to Saul. Last week, we saw how Saul refused to obey God's command with the Amalekites. It was a hard command. God told him to spare no one, but what did Saul do? 
He spared the best of the plunder, didn't he? He gathered it all to himself, and then he feigned repentance to save his own self-image. So God rejected Saul. And this begins Saul's terrible downward spiral that will continue and intensify for the rest of the book. And it starts in chapter 16, verse 2. God tells Samuel to anoint another king, and Samuel says, how can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. Saul is not a stable genius. He's become self-obsessed. He's become a paranoid tyrant. He's in the grip of power. The poisonous seeds of insecurity have been planted deep in his soul, and he knows that his time, his kingship, is limited. And so what does he do? He does what any corrupt politician does. He stops ruling. He stops leading. He stops governmenting, governing. He stops implementing change and reform. And he puts all of his thoughts, all of his energy, all of his time into staying in power. Now, how can this happen to a person? Because, you know, Saul didn't start out coveting power. Apart from his good looks, the only remarkable thing about Saul was his apparent lack of ambition. If any of you are familiar with the personality test, the Enneagram, Saul would have been a nine. A nine. Let me, let me read you the description of a nine. Nines are accepting, trusting, and stable. They're usually creative, optimistic, and supportive but can also be too willing to go along with others to keep the peace. They want everything to go smoothly and be without conflict. But they can also tend to be complacent, simplifying problems and minimizing anything upsetting. In summary, nines want to create harmony in their, in their environment, to avoid conflicts and tension, to preserve things as they are, and to resist whatever would upset or disturb them. Now, does anything about that description scream narcissist to anyone? Does it scream megalomaniac or power monger? But you see, Saul has been ravaged by evil. Sure, he didn't covet power. But like Frodo in the ring, power coveted him. And this was one battle that Saul was unprepared to fight. He had entered into a vocation that he was not yet ready to accept. He had underestimated the smooth seduction of evil. And he had overestimated his own ability to resist it. I wonder if you have ever been surprised, like Saul, at the evil that lurks, that surprises you around your own vocation. Maybe it's the envy that keeps you from appreciating your coworkers' accomplishments. Or the shaming that happens when somebody makes a mistake, makes a mistake. Or at the subtle way that racism and classism can sneak into your company's thought processes. Evil is not content simply to have a place at the table. 
It must dominate you. It must rule you and destroy you. And if it's not intensely resisted, if it's fed and nurtured like an ugly bitterness, it will overwhelm you. It will strip you of the power that you once had and hurl you into a downward spiral of loneliness and fear and despair like it did to Saul. But God will not be rivaled by evil. He grieves for Saul. Samuel does too. But he's not a God who dwells in the past. He is the God who draws Israel into her future. And that future has David written all over it. We're told later in the Old Testament that David is a man after God's own heart. And what that means is that more more than any of Israel's kings, David walked with God. He had a personal relationship with God. He knew his heart. And God also knew David's heart. That's why he chose him as king. There was something special about David's heart, the control center of all his actions and behaviors that God loved. And what was that? That's the question I want us to spend the rest of our time this morning answering. What kind of heart is God looking for? What is the heart that God loves? And we can answer that with four characteristics. First, God loves a humble heart. Look with me at verse 11. Then Samuel asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? And Jesse says, they're still the youngest, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats. Our first glimpse of David is his absence. He's away from the action. He's kept far out in the fields, the place where he can do the least amount of damage. He's the male Cinderella, left to his chores instead of being invited to the party. And he's not even given a name, not until the very end of the section. We know him only according to his insignificant. He is the youngest one, the baby brother, the weak one, the naive one, the runt. I wonder if any of you felt like that growing up. Maybe you were the forgotten one or the unacknowledged one or the one who got all the hand-me-downs, the one who never received your parents' full attention. Or maybe you were the one in school who was never picked for the team, uh, never invited to the party, always at the back of the line, and never even dreamed of what it would be like to be out front. That's David. Never the leader, always the follower, because... He has no one younger that he can practice leadership on. And yet, strangely enough, it's David that God chooses. It's the lowly one, the humble one, tending the sheep. When God wishes to choose a leader, God looks to see how he tends sheep. 
God is looking and asking, how will this person be good to the powerless and to the lost, to the minorities, to the poor, to the refugees? Can she be a caretaker? Can he be gentle? Here's a question worth considering. How are you at tending the sheep in your own life? How are you at caring for your family, at nurturing those relationships with your spouse who loves you, or your children who at every age, I say this as a 30-year-old, who at every age are craving your attention? Are you giving them quality time? Or are you always giving them the leftovers? Are you giving them the hours when you're at your best? Or the hours when you're at your very worst? How are you at caring for the poor in Harrisonburg? Would they ever think of you as their shepherd? Do you know their names? Do you know their stories? Do they know your name? Have they been introduced to your family? Invited over to your table? In the New Testament, Paul calls this kind of thing associating with the lowly. And it's risky business because we tend only to associate with people who have connections, who can help us in a bind, who can introduce us to the right people and bolster our status. It's the sensible political move. But in God's politics, power is given to the humble shepherds, the ones who are completely focused on the sheep. Could it be that God wants to teach you humility right where you are? Who are the sheep that you need to tend? Who are the ignored ones that you need to spend time with? It's not beneath you. See, Christianity says in an upside-down sort of way, that's kingly behavior. That's what a king does. And it comes from a heart that God loves. Second, God loves a spirit-filled heart. Uh, When Samuel anoints David with oil in verse 13, we're told that the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Now, didn't Saul receive the Holy Spirit? He did. And again, if we look back to chapters 9 and 10, we see that Saul became a changed man. It transformed him. He started prophesying and doing all sorts of things that God empowered him to do, not least of which was ruling the kingdom. But Saul didn't stay true to the Holy Spirit. He squandered the gift. He persisted in rebellion, didn't he? He grieved the Spirit and drove him out of his life. And what this shows us is that there's a difference between simply receiving the Holy Spirit, which happens at baptism, and being filled with the Holy Spirit, which can happen again and again and again as we ask for it and allow God to have full reign in our lives. So think about it like a bathroom sink, the kind that has a, a single handle that you can turn on and off pretty easily. Now, behind the wall of this sink 
is a series of interconnected, high-pressure pipes that brings the water into your home from a larger source, a reservoir or a water tower or a local water station or whatever. When the water is shut off at your sink, a tiny valve closes that prevents the water from flowing. And when that valve is closed, the water behind it is under extreme pressure. It's sitting there in that pipe, and it wants very badly uh, to come and wash your hands. And yet you control when the water is turned on. Like It's you who who determines how powerful that flow of water is. The water is always there. Um, The potential is always just a few centimeters behind a tiny, powerful valve. You can lift the handle only slightly to wet your toothbrush, or you can lift the handle full blast to wash your hands after changing a diaper or something. But it's up to you. Now imagine that the water is the Holy Spirit. And imagine there's a faucet connected to your heart. The Spirit is under intense pressure. He's pushing on the valve of your faucet heart. And you can feel that pressure when you wake up in the morning, throughout your day at work, when you're stuck in traffic, and in the moments before you go to sleep. It's holy pressure. And God is inviting you to turn on the faucet. You see, Saul and David are such different people. And it's not that David was perfect. He, he was not. He did awful things in his life. But do you know what Saul had that Do you know what David had that Saul didn't? He had a heart for God. He knew God. And yes, he could stray from God, but he would always come back. David loved, he loved the Holy Spirit. He couldn't imagine life without him. Later in life, after he was caught red-handed in a terrible sin, he pleaded with God in Psalm 51 Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Please don't take your Holy Spirit away. How would your life look without the Holy Spirit? Would you miss him? Or would it be pretty much the same? What are the things that you're doing for God, on mission for God, that you can only do, you can only fulfill by the power of the Holy Spirit? Jesus says in Luke 11 that the Father will give the Holy Spirit to whoever asks him. Just ask. That's an amazing promise. The same Spirit that God gave to kings for courage and wisdom and joy, all the things they couldn't muster up on their own, that same Spirit is available to you right now. And all you have to do is ask. So ask. Don't be like Saul and drive the Spirit away, grieve him. Be like David. Be filled with the Spirit again and again. Turn on the faucet and let the Holy Spirit be unleashed in a fresh way in your life. Third, God loves a broken heart. When David received the Holy Spirit, it was like he received a down payment on the kingdom. 
But he wasn't automatically, immediately enrolled into the lineage of royalty. Instead, God enrolled him into the school of brokenness. David wouldn't become king for at least another decade. That's incredible. He would have to wait until God's appointed time. So can you imagine the scene in verse 13? It says that David was anointed among his brothers. All of his family's watching this. Samuel pours the oil on David's head. The spirit comes rushing down. And I don't know, maybe, some, maybe somebody shouts something like, Behold, the Lord's anointed. And then Samuel returned to Ramah. Nothing. You know what David's first act as God's anointed probably was? It was to relieve whichever one of his brothers was watching the sheep for him. Back to work. And in the next chapter, we see him running a few sandwiches to his brothers out on the battlefield. He's the errand boy. Why? Why would God give David such an incredible calling? And then plunge him back into obscurity, into the menial, the mundane, the insignificant. It's because David was for, God was forming David for leadership. He was forming him. God will often call you to something before you're ready. And you'll try to make it happen immediately and you'll fall. And you'll say, I'm sorry. And then you'll try to make it happen again and you'll fall. Until it finally reaches the point where you yield and you say to God, I'm ready to follow your timing, not mine. This is how God formed Moses for the Exodus. Moses knew God was up to something when he was in Egypt, that he was calling him to something. That's what made him leave Egypt. But before he went back, God kept him in the wilderness for 40 years in total obscurity. Think about Joseph who had visions of his brothers bowing down to him. How many years did he have to wait until that actually happened? Or even Jesus. Somehow he knows at age 12 that God has a special calling on his life. And he's teaching the scribes in the temple. But it's not until age 30, 18 years later, that he's unleashed in God's timing. I mean, think of how many sick people Jesus would have walked past on the street in his teens and in his 20s, the ages when we're brimming with ambition. These people he could have healed, and yet he walks past them. Think of how many hungry people he could have fed, but he had to wait. The book of Hebrews tells us that in his humanity, Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. And this is so hard for for us to understand, that God would call us and inspire us and put a burning desire in our hearts um, for something the world desperately needs and then tell us to sit tight for, who knows, a decade? Decades? It's about formation. We all have to be trained and formed and shaped by our Creator. The selfish dreams have to give way to God's dreams. The ego has to give way to humility. 
The fear has to give way to courage. The self-sufficiency has to give way to prayer. Our small group in Stanton is ready to start a church. And let me tell you, they are ready. They are champing at the bit. Why would God make them wait? Even if it's for only six months or a year. Don't we know how good a new Anglican church in Stanton might be? But again, it's about formation. The Stanton small group is learning how to pray. They're learning how to see the acute needs of their city. They're learning how to grieve, not just point out, but to grieve the brokennesses and the injustices that they see in their neighborhoods. And they're learning how to love each other as brothers and sisters through thick and thin. The point is, it takes a broken person to do God's business. The Lutheran pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So has God called you to something? Something big? Something great? Something monumental? Learn to die. Learn to hold your life lightly. Learn to be a vessel in God's hands. And as you learn to die, as you get further and further along in the school of brokenness, just watch for the way God will resurrect you and amaze you as you walk with Him. Fourth and finally, God loves a servant heart. We're told in verse 21 that David went to Saul and began serving him. So here's David, the next king, in a sense, the true king, Saul's spiritual superior, and he's serving him. He's playing the harp. He doesn't even get a good instrument. He's playing the harp at Saul's beck and call. I wonder how much agony that caused David. Again, knowing that he was destined for something greater, but having to spend his time doing the work of a servant. Now, I was in college when I sensed God's call to vocational ministry. And do you want to know the first job I had, first church job I had? It was cleaning bathrooms. Um, you can imagine my conversation with the senior pastor. Can I be the associate pastor? No. Can I be the discipleship pastor? No. Can I be the youth intern? No. But we do have a janitorial opening. I cleaned bathrooms in a megachurch for two years. And I so badly wanted to be on the pulpit. On stage. Under the lights. Making decisions. Changing lives. But God had me right where he wanted me in the fifth stall of the women's bathroom. <laughs> he was teaching me service. I was riddled with ambition. But he was teaching me prayer and silence and patience. Now God's route to leadership, God's route to our calling 
always goes through the pasture of service. For me, it was cleaning bathrooms. For David, it was playing music. And for Jesus, it was washing his disciples' feet. To serve is to walk in the path of kings. It's the way of the cross. The cross always comes before the crown. But it ends in the resurrection.